Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Highlander cast. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Vance. With me is our other regular host, Sav. Hello everyone. And uh, this episode we're going to be talking about mid-range decks in Highlander. Um, so we're going to talk about some of the archetypes, some of the sorts of cores of the decks and the packages that go in them. But first we're just going to have a bit of a chat about what are mid-range decks. Sav, do you want to start this bit? Yeah, so we're going to talk about what is the definition of mid-range, then we'll talk about what it means in Highlander. Uh, there's a few dot points that I have here, and this is largely trawled from uh, you know different personal experiences, also matched up with uh, various articles on the internet. Uh, if you do a little bit of a wiki search on mid-range, you'll find lots of uh, conflicting definitions. So to find one solid definition in one line is almost impossible. So instead, I'll list out some of our dot points. Uh, the first dot point is uh, having both aggro and control elements in the deck, but they're the opposite of tempo. So tempo usually tries to be aggressive early uh, early on and then tries to have some kind of control to keep that aggression to close the game, like uh, protect the queen, whereas mid-range is the opposite. So you have your control in the early game, things like thought seizing them, lightning bolting a mana dork, you know, just making sure that you have general good defense against aggro early and then flipping it around into the aggro later on, having your, uh, you know, Huntmaster of the Fells or your, you know, whatever your creature of choice is, your Titania, that's the thing that's going to finish the game later on. So yeah, you, your late game is just Haymaker after Haymaker. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a fun way to play Magic, right? Oh, it's great. <laughs> it's uh, it's largely the uh, the definition of of Highlander. Mm, maybe for I don't know how 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 long has it been? Maybe the last ten years or so has been quite a bit of a mid range grind fest here and there. It depends on on where you play. Um, yeah, it but, has been at times. You know, that's just the power of cards being printed recently. So uh, I think the one of the questions that we've had uh, from viewers and discussion on Discord as well has been, you know, where does mid-range sit in the beatdown spectrum? Like, who is the beatdown? Uh, the answer to that question is largely uh, no early, but yes when you're late. So you're really generally, in, in very, very loose terms, are going to beat the beatdown, not at the beginning of the game, but more like in the middle of the game and sometimes at the end of the game, depending on and, who you're And playing. it is, it's an important skill to learn for a mid-range deck is knowing when that... I mean, it's kind of like knowing when you've got the tempo, but it's knowing when you are the beatdown. Mm. Um, because if you misidentifying it, you might not be anymore. You, you might have lost your opportunity. So it's um, there's a definite skill to working out when you should just start going ham. Absolutely. Sometimes people get so excited about skull clamping away their mana dorks. And you go, why are you clamping? You, you need to actually apply pressure because your opponent is going to win. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, very, very important role identification there. So another dot point is um, generally mid-range likes to win via attrition. So just trying to grind out value. And this could be via actual card advantage, like drawing additional cards or getting the additional value worth of a card stapled onto whatever effect you currently have. Um, or incidental, you know, through really good trades on the ground and, um, you know, going around your opponent in some in some respects. It's it's quite a, an interesting uh, mindset to think about how can I get the most amount of value out of, uh, out of your plays. Yeah. Another dot point is uh, it's sometimes about curving out, not always, 
but sometimes. And uh, one of the really good comparisons is probably thinking about, let's say, a really, really typical aggro deck like uh, Vance's Beloved Zoo is all about curving out, you know, one drop into one drop, one drop. You know, these kind of very, very, um, you know, curve-centric ways of playing the game. Uh, you can do that in mid-range. And the only difference is that you just go a bit bigger. You're like a bigger aggro deck in some ways where you go turn one Thoughtseize, turn two Tarmogoyf, turn three, you know, some some guy's Corsa of Krupix or something. It's the only thing I can think Liliana of at the time. Liliana of the Veil, Corsa of Krupix. Yeah, yeah, Liliana of the Veil. Yeah, that's like, you curve out. You just curve out in a different way from an aggro deck. Uh, um, and I think the other difference there is for an aggro deck, it's really important to hit those first three. Like you want to do, you absolutely want to do something on turn one. You want to do as many things as possible on turn two and three. Whereas for a mid-range deck, it's kind of shifted up a couple of slots where it's, if you don't do anything on turn one or two, it's not great, but you can often survive it. But if you're not doing anything important on turns sort of three, four and five, it's a big problem for you. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's where your power lies, isn't it? Yeah, so that's right. The next point is tied back into curving out. Uh, it's all about mana. So mana is really, really important for a mid-range deck. Uh, that doesn't mean that you play a lot of mana. You tend to have access to mana, but it's not normally the traditional mana. You know, you might not be playing 25 lands like a, a control deck is. You might be playing 21 lands, but you're playing, say five or six mana dogs, or maybe a Mox Emerald or something like that. So you have access to a lot of mana to make sure that you can uh, curve out and your curve is ten tends to be a little bit higher. Uh, also tied into these points are scaling. So mid-range decks really, really like to scale. So, you know, Fireball is a bad example because that's not really a playable card right now in Highlander, but uh, Fireball is your iconic scaling card. You know, it, it does one damage on with two mana, and then later on it does seven damage with eight mana. You want that kind of power in your mid-range deck to be able to be flexible. Uh, and tied into that is also mana sinks as well. Uh, I think... Uh, being able to do something with that additional mana is really important. And that can sometimes be, say, equipping something, or it could be using the mana from those mana dorks later on to power up a scavenging ooze. These are really good mana sinks. Yep. yep. Uh, another point for mid-range is that it's adaptable and versatile. So this becomes really, really important in the sideboard. Uh, it ties back into that role identification where you go, well, I need to adapt to a particular situation. And that might be, I'm playing against combo. So you go, well, I'm going to be the beatdown. And then post-board, I might become a control deck because I'm going to bring in Stony Silence and a variety of other different tools. Uh, Mid-range tends to be the type of deck that has the largest number of colors in it. That's a very, very uh, broad statement that I've made there. And people are going to find ways to prove that wrong with you know five-color combo decks and the like. But in general, a mid-range deck... Yeah, I mean, I disagree pretty strongly, but come on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a mid-range deck, you'll, you'll tend to find that the more colours you start to add, the more likely you are to go and leverage the power of access to multiple colours, which means that those powerful cards in multiple different colours are going to uh, lend you more to a bit of a grindier, uh, mid-rangey type of game. Uh, and because you have access to more colours, it means that your sideboard has access to the best possible sideboard hate in each of those colours. So that's why the sideboard ties in really, really nicely with the mid-range. Uh, yeah. And the last point is uh, your finishes tend to be sweet 
Timmy cards that people look at on the surface and go, hey, this is this is sweet. I just want to turn this thing sideways. Uh, the opposite is in control. Control tends to use whatever's left over. So you fight a counter war, a snapcaster mage went on the stack at some point to flash back a critical spell, and all the dust settles, and then you turn, yeah, turn that guy sideways, right? Same with, you know, spell seeker or something. That's that's what you're gonna use to finish your game. Uh, but in mid-range you don't. Yeah. So in mid-range you're you you don't have, say, a dedicated finisher. Again, control decks are like, here's my Bane Slayer Angel, I'm gonna finish the game. Uh, but mid-range just has all these, you know, critters, all these cool critters that you can go, I'm going to finish the game, and every one of these tends to be a respectable threat. So that brings us to the end of the episode. Thanks for listening. No, that brings us to the end of the definition of midrange. <laughs> so we kind of know what midrange is about. So I'll pose this question to Vance. Why is midrange fun to play? I mean, there's a couple of reasons, and it depends what you're in for. I mean, one of the reasons it's fun to play is mid-range wins matches, like, and winning is fun. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at a more fundamental level, for me at least, it's that you just get to play with all the cool spells and all the cool creatures. You get to play, you know, all of these cool dragons and angels and cards like Yidris, which is, you know, a horrifying giant monstrosity. They're mostly the kinds of cards which are very satisfying to play, um, like, you know, playing Titania and just putting multiple five threes into play is just really enjoyable for at least one of the people at the table. You also tend to have matches that are long and re- feel quite skill intensive. They're not necessarily more skill intensive than a really good aggro match or whatever, mm. but you make a lot of decisions. You play so much magic, um, and it often feels like all of your decisions matter, um, which can feel less true sometimes when you're playing either with or aggress- or against uh, certain kinds of combo decks or control decks where at least one of the players after a while might just feel like nothing that they're doing is in the slightest way relevant. When you're having a mid-range mirror, you're making all these cool decisions, you're trying to you know squeeze out whatever advantage you can um, out of your incidental or actual card advantage. Um, and those matchups just tend to be, you know, quite enjoyable to play and to watch. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the mid-range grind is just quite exciting because no player is really out of the game. You know, as you tend to find the, say, aggro versus control matchup. If the aggro player hasn't killed you by a particular turn, a critical turn, then they're basically drawing to one out, and that one out might be price of progress. You know, you're going, okay, I've got to get you for eight with this price. And as long as the control player has a counter spell in their hand, they're going to find it really, really hard for that aggro player to have a game uh, after a particular point. But the mid-range match is great. Yeah, it's fun all the time at all points of the game. And it's often the same for combo decks that depends a bit on the combo and a bit on the players. But if you're playing control versus combo, you know, sometimes they're going to kill you on turn two or three. Um, and a lot of the rest of the time, you're going to sort of have them locked in a prison of their own design of your own design um (laughs) and the match might go for another 15 turns or another 10 turns but it's not going to be very exciting at any point during that time so true Um, so yeah Yeah, so that's 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 why why i enjoy mid-rangey sorts of decks yeah that's why yeah we we love it and if you (laughs) if you're thinking about sleeving up mid-range you might 
want to tune in carefully and listen to some of the decks that we're going to discuss here. And if you like the sound of them, just go to the Oz Eternal forums and there's a decklist forum there. You can go and look up those particular deck archetypes and uh, you'll have a whole lot of fun just kind of trawling through them and seeing sweet cards where you go, oh, I think I've got that in my folder. I'd like to sleeve that up. And everyone just goes, that's a respectable threat. You can you can sleeve up anything. Hey, you know, attracts the praise as a voice. If someone goes, I'm playing this, you go, well, okay, if you want to. It's, that's mid-range. Yeah, I- <laughs> I think that's one of the other important things is although we're going to name some we're going to talk about some archetypes in medium detail um, and we're going to talk about a lot of specific cards you can't mid-range it. One of the other things that makes mid-range really fun is it is one of the places where you can um, get away with playing some of your pet cards because there are so many cards that fill similar roles at similar costs and are of similar power level to each other. Like, there are some which are much better. If you're playing a green mid-range deck and you're not playing Titania, you've probably made a mistake. But, um, like, I've been playing Thunderbreak Regent as one of the fours in my deck, and there are probably better options, but there aren't sweeter options, and it's close enough. Um, So... Yeah, well, look, True Name Nemesis is an absolute staple in blue decks, and Titania is an absolute staple in green mid-range decks. Both of these have two T's in them. I think, look, this is... <laughs> it's confirmed. It's ab- absolutely the, the without a doubt. The two T's theory of magic. Yeah, yeah cool. <laughs> I'm in. Um... So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to chat about some Highlander decks uh, in the context of that, that kind of... Uh, you know, our thoughts and definitions around mid-range. What we're not going to talk about are the hybrid archetypes. We could dedicate an entire episode to hybrid archetypes. A really good example of one is Flash, because Flash is this combo deck, and people look at it and go, oh, that's that's a combo deck. But a lot of its games are just won by playing the mid-range game, but the mid-range is a backup kind of uh, strategy for it. And the closest that we tend to get with these kind of almost muddled definitions, because there's a a lot of crossover, it's very, very hard to draw a hard line anywhere, is the lands decks, because they tend to be kind of mid-range decks, but they have this occasional cheese out of victory with a merit large, and then this loop that feels like it's a combo, this kind of life on the loam loop again and again, and you go, how am I going to beat this? It's like a, a combo deck, but... They're fundamentally playing a mid-range game, uh, so we're going to discuss them here. Uh, We'll touch on Elves as well near the end. Uh, And one other kind of a shout-out that we'd like to do as well is uh, to shout-out to Jacob Dunn, who was talking about uh, packages and uh, core cards. This is something that he's been uh, trying to restructure the forums with, uh, taking the core cards from a particular archetype and then saying these are the you know two or three different ways you could play this deck. If you change these, let's say, eight cards, it morphs the deck into a very different type of play strategy or a different type of um, uh, role in, in certain matchups. So uh, yeah. we're going to try and take that approach. And yeah. these lines will be very blurred. It would be quite hard to, uh, to say that one's definitively in one family and not in another. But yeah, what yeah. we will do is um, we'll do our best to make this as understandable from a listener point of view because you don't have this piece of paper in front of you. It makes it a little bit of a it's, challenge. It's certainly so blurred that Sav and I had a five-minute discussion earlier about one of these decks. And I'm still Saved not sure that either of us agrees with the other person. Yeah. But, uh, 
<laughs> we're just going to be doggedly going, no, no, no. <laughs> um, the, the other thing to emphasize as well is, although we're talking about, you know, cause of decks, um, as usual, Highlander is a long way from solved. And you might look at one of these decks and look at some of the cards in the core and go, actually, I think doing this other thing is better. And that's... So, so some of the things that these sort of three or four families of decks have in common, um, not always, but often. Uh, so they've often contain mana dorks. Um, mid-range decks are often base green or at least have a splash of green and frequently feature some elves or similar to help make sure that you hit your later drops. Well, A, that you hit them at all and B, that you hit them earlier. Um, there's often cheap disruption, uh, things like Jurassic Inquisition, the Thoughtseize, um, a light countersweet if you're in blue, a uh, burn if you're in red, or other removal in, in various colours. Um, grindy engines, which tend to be sort of the core of these, of many of these decks. So Planeswalkers often fit this. They're often your way of gaining card advantage because <clears throat> if you play uh, Garrick Wildspeaker and you make multiple elephants out of him or beasts uh, make multiple beasts out of him then you've gained sort of between one and three cards depending on how, how you want to look at it mana six as i've mentioned can be very important so uh creature lands like raging ravine uh birthing pod can be a mana sink of a sort uh various equipment like umazawa's jit or the swords scavenging ooze these sorts of things and the other thing that a lot of mid-range decks choose to play are really savage haymakers in the sideboard. There are some matchups where you're fundamentally unfavoured and, and you want to have ways of pulling those back. So this can be things like uh, Rest in Peace, uh, Choke, Thrun, Sylvan Library, um, the new Sixth Man of Chandra, the name of which escapes me offhand. Uh, but these, these are cards that you can bring in, in a matchup that you're expecting to go long, and if it does go long, you're just going to wreck your opponent with it. So, you know, you're playing a blue base blue control deck, you play the Chandra that gives them lots of little emblems that cause them to continue to burn, and it's gonna you're gonna get to draw it. It's gonna resolve because it's uncounterable, and it's gonna make their life miserable. Yeah. What's one of our first groupings, Sav? So uh, one thing to do is if you uh, listen to the summary that that Vance gave you just then, think back to what we were talking about the definitions. Basically, all of those categories fit part of the definition of mid-range so yeah, really yeah. really important to make sure you know what your role is when you're building your deck so if you are going to try and build a new mid-range deck or whatever particular colors interest you uh, think to yourself how can i tick off these boxes and how can i fit within this realm to make sure that you know your role and you can play it well so let's leap into the first family the first family is very very dear to my heart it's the junk family now, I, my very first Highlander deck ever was junk, value junk, traditional. Uh, I believe it's called Abzan now in the new yeah. nomenclature. So I was going to say, it's often called Abzan rather than junk because all those people are like, oh, why are you playing these junk cards there? And I'm like, that doesn't sound very good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, basically the junk family are green-white and they have some kind of amount of black in them. But then sometimes they have blue. So they have like a dark band is a good example. It'll be band, green, white, blue with a splash of black. Either way, this particular family of, uh, you know, value junk and dark band tend to play out very similarly, which is why they're in the same, the same uh, category. 
Now, it's all because of their key themes. So the key theme is that they curve out. They're probably the closest decks that you could align with the concept of mid-range curving out like a big aggro deck. We're not saying yeah. they're always aggressive, but curving out is probably one of the most important aspects, whereas the other mid-range parts of the family focus less on curving out and more on other aspects. Uh, so there's two, two uh, concepts that are fundamental to the junk family. The first concept is the the birthing pod and the pod curve. Now, birthing pod is a point specifically because these decks, you know, junk yeah. back in the day, dark band, they were just an absolute menace, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, as recently as uh, two or three years ago, mm, it feels like dark band was the absolute, you know, dominant deck in Melbourne. Um, mm. And it, it is, it's still a good deck. Yeah, it keeps it keeps resurfacing, and the thing is, you know, you can't hold a deck like anything within the junk family down because it is so proactive. Being in that kind of mid-range, bordering on curve out aggro, um, big aggro, it it is always playing a proactive game, and it asks your opponent fundamental questions, and your opponent, if they uh, slip up, they're going to lose because you just went turn one Lanoir elves, turn two blade splicer and turn three Siege Rhino, and they're just going, well, how am I going to keep up with this? So the the pod curve is really, really important as well. So knowing how you can uh, play specific cards in the deck that interact favorably with Birthing Pod, stuff like Strangle Root Geist, Blade Splicer, also Restoration Angel to blink one of the things you've potted away and it has a counter on it. And then it comes yeah. back again, ready for you to pot again. <clears throat> and then, you know, your your actual curve tops out in Siege Rhino and then Titania. And that's about as high as it goes, which actually keeps it quite low compared to other mid-range decks that can play things like a Sun Titan or a uh, Primeval Titan. These going up to yeah, six, I mean, that's a bit bigger. Some, sometimes the pod decks do uh, go up to a... Um... Well, a Sun Titan or a Worm Coil or similar, but yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah, just like one six drop, absolute maximum. And so many times the decks kind of go, oh, in this meta, I have to cut that six drop because yeah. it doesn't really yeah. fit that particular. Yeah, so that's that's why it really likes to be that, that mid-range big, big aggro. The second core element of the Junk family is the equipment package. And uh, we were talking about mana sinks before because you fill your deck with so much mana and junk is a great example it runs about 21 lands sometimes 22 and it runs upwards of seven mana dorks and sometimes can use its green sun zenith to treat it fetching dried arbor as its eighth mana dork that's basically half of your deck being mana and the advantage is you know you're always going to hit your land drops you're going to make sure you're going to curve out but then you're going to flood in the late game so you need to turn that mana into something practical Equip your creatures with your Umazawa's Jitte, your uh, Skull Clamp, and your Sword of Fire and Ice slash Batter Skull, or activate your Treetop Village or your you know whatever whatever you've got. It's yeah. just you're going to put that mana to good use. Uh, so that's essentially the Junk family. Now people will ask why should I play Dark Band or why should I play Junk? Uh, when people look at it, they kind of look okay. Well, Dark Band has more colors, therefore it's probably more powerful. Uh, it's actually not as clear-cut as that because 
when you look at the power that blue adds to this particular equation, you get Brainstorm, which is amazing. It's the only cantrip that the deck will run, but that's because Brainstorm is awesome in the late game. You put back two lands, shuffle them away, and yeah. you know, you're basically just Ancestor Recall in the late game. And you have that small amount of soft mission, like a, a daze or an evasive action, which is a mana leak for four often. Uh, but aside from that, the three drops that you gain from blue... Uh, Spell Queller, Leovold, True Name Nemesis, and Vendillion Click actually uh, clog up the three drop slot. And in Junk, Junk already has a lot of great three drops. So what you're actually doing is you're improving them marginally. And, you know, True Name Nemesis is the biggest of the marginal upgrades. Uh, it's from, a pretty good upgrade. Yeah, a pretty, pretty damn good upgrade there. Uh, from your other three drops like uh, Corsair Crucifix and Blade Splicer and these kind of things that are entirely respectable in their own right. If you just wanted to play three colours, you play these, you're not going to necessarily feel the loss in power in the mid-game. In the late game, you will, because the Leovold has gained so much advantage or the Trino Nemesis has been able to be a one-sided Sulfuric Vortex for three. But that's it's not to say that it's as clear-cut as just adding a colour, you get a great level of power. Because when you look at it in contrast, Junk gets to play double black cards. Double black cards like the two Lilianas, Liliana the Veil and Liliana Last Hope. They are yeah, cards that you just really can't fit into Dark Band easily due to its mana costs. You get to play Choke in your sideboard, and you also get a higher resistance to Blood Moon effects. So uh, they're, they're both great options. You could rock up to any event. I played Junk for at least two years before experimenting with uh, adding Blue and making it Dark Band. And when I did, I went, oh, I actually really, really miss double black cards and i miss being largely immune to to blood moon so yeah him him to turek is another card that you can definitely play in junk that you can't really play in dark band mm, mm. so um, that's that's the junk family sorry before we move on i think one of the things that we should mention for each of these is how they're getting their card advantage um because it's very important for midranger decks that you have some kind of actual or virtual card advantage and i think for for these junk decks one of the main and dark band one of the main ways they're getting it is um i mean equipment can definitely do it but the other one is the cards like uh blade splicer and strangle root geist which where you're just playing all of these sort of value two for one creatures um so anyway yeah you, don't, you definitely don't see that in the other the other uh families of mid-range as much they will definitely yeah, have those you kind see of, a bit you know, but not as much incidental yeah. Whereas it's it's yeah. really essential to the to the junk family for those um potting interactions and planeswalkers they tend to have junk tends to have more planeswalkers and the like but uh that's neither here nor there because all of these decks run planeswalkers and they're all great so <laughs> let's uh have a look at the lands family so the lands family and uh, one of these will be will be uh hotly debated hotly contested but I'll go over my definitions first, then we can talk about uh, where we differ on them. So these tend to be green-black in their fundamentals, and the X that you add to it can be green-black-white for Gardening Australia, uh, green-black-red for Jundum, uh, or green-black-blue for the Backyard Science deck. All of these use some kind of lands theme. So the key theme is, is less about, say, playing seven mana dorks and curving out, it's more about late game grind. And one advantage of this late game grind is uh, using the, the lands kind of sub theme, you have this sweet interaction with, you know how we we're talking about having 
occasionally getting flooded in the late game and needing to have mana sinks. Well, you've got things like cycling lands. You've got the horizon lands to uh, sacrifice and draw a card. You've got Volrath Stronghold, which puts creatures back on your deck. You've got uh, Strip Mine and Wasteland, which gets you effective uh, advantage by just putting your opponent uh, on a, hey, do you have a land? No, I win. Um, and then you've got the payoffs for those things. So you've got things like Life on the Loam and uh, one key factor. These are all green, black, X. All the decks in the Lands family all run in Tomb. That's because Life on the Loam is so integral to this to these decks to make them work that they just want to go, hey, I'm going to throw away my car- my immediate card advantage to search for Life on the Loam, chuck it in the bin, because I know that the late game, I'm going to win this late game. Uh, and then it has other Lands interactions like Fast Bond, Exploration. If a deck's running Fast Bond and Exploration and Life on the Loam, uh, it's probably a Lands in, in the Lands family. Uh, and things like Crucible of Worlds, Raminat Excavator does the same thing. Tireless Tracker gives you payoffs for land drops, and Mox Diamond lets you, you know, vault forward when you need to. Uh, so that's essentially the core of the decks. Now you can experiment with which of those uh, third colors you run, and uh, because there's only five colors in Magic, there's only these three possible green, bat, black X decks in the lands family. Uh, but you can experiment with uh, with things that haven't really been tried before, like uh, you know, rug lands and the like. But if you were to choose one of these, you know, someone goes, why? I want to play a lands deck. I've got the lands, I've got the lands cards, the core. What other packages I can choose? Uh, the three packages are, well, if you choose uh, white, then you're going to get Knight of the Reliquary, Swords of Plowshares, and powerful sideboard cards like Stony Silence, Gadok Teague, and the Eidolon that shuts off Storm. And uh, the for blue, you're going to get a couple of cantrips. You get Spellseeker to find Life on the Loam again to make sure you've got it. You've got Gifts Ungiven and Intuition that entomb the Life on the Loam consistently. And then you've got powerful blue edition cards like Leovold, Tatiova, Benthic Druid or whatever it is, and Muldrotha the Gravetide. These are just, you know, just powerful ways you can gain some advantage. Both of those two uh, styles of deck, the um, Splash White and Splash Blue, versions run thespian stage and dark depths giving you that surprise combo element and that inevitability of just loaming back those two playing them again and telling your opponent do you have an answer for this 2020 because otherwise you're going to die the exception to that rule is the red splash for jundam so jundam runs the entirety of the uh, core lands theme with the cycling lands and volas stronghold all these essential things with strip and waste and loaming but it doesn't run the st- uh, the stage and depths uh, aspect. Well, actually, let, let me jump in. Um, what's happening is there there are two decks. One of which I 100% agree is a lands deck, which is Jund Lands. Um, the other one is Jund, and Jund Lands does run um, well, runs at least dark depths. I presume it runs Thespian stage. Um, but it's the the difference for me is, is a bit about what your aim is. So in Jundam, or at least in Crusadi's original version, so it had a lands sub theme, um, but it wasn't but very big. Was it? Bit, well, he he had he had strip and waste. He had life from the Loman in tomb. Uh, Grove of the burn was, etc. Um, but most of the time, his deck played basically like a normal Jund deck from modern. Well, oh, yeah. probably not from modern because nothing's normal in modern at the moment. But you know, from from what my memory of modern is, um, <laughs> back in the and day, and sometimes he would strip lock people um, with life from the loam and 
Uh, I think he had a Ram and Epic Excavator and not a Crucible from memory. Yeah, well, back um, then it was probably Crucible, right? Like, uh, before Ram and App was printed, I think. Before our uh, maybe, Yeah, maybe, maybe you're mm. right. Because it was, it maybe was, he didn't have a Crucible at all. Yeah, it was around for a long time. Maybe he just time, had Life from the Loam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, back, um, in, back in those days. But the reason, the reason for running the lands package there is sometimes you get to. Sometimes you get people game one by strip locking them and they sideboard in all their lands hate and you basically don't care because most of your deck is not a lands deck. You're, you're just, you know, mid-range valuing them in the more traditional manner. Um, yep. So. I can definitely see yeah. those two as, as kind of uh, different different themes that play out very differently. So if you, if you are thinking about sleeving up Jund as a mid-range deck, think critically about whether you want to be strongly in the lands family camp and really really you know grind out that late game or whether you want to play out more like that modern style of you know turn one thought seize turn two tamagoyf and just go to town so yeah and and this this relates back to our discussion of sort of cores and packages where if you took a jund lands deck and a jundum deck they're probably less than 10 cards different they might be less than five cards different but they play very differently on the back of, or well, at least in the main deck, they're probably more different in the sideboard. But they play very differently on the back of those strategic high-level decisions. Mm, especially when you're like, okay, well, I identify that in this matchup, it's going to be all about that I have Thespian Stage and Dark Depths and you don't, or that the other player has Raging Ravine, Treetop Village, and uh, you know, a Mishra's Factory or something, and you don't. So, like, there, there could be very, yeah. very different roles that they play against each other. So, either yeah. way, both of those both of those decks are getting uh, a powerful suite of cards in the form of Culligan's Command, uh, oh, yeah. Gamble, if you want to get those uh, things into the graveyard, like Life from the Loam and Punishing Fire, uh, Grove and Fire, that, that combination from Legacy, Bloodbraid Elf, Huntmaster of the Fells, two powerful four drops, uh, you know, Bolt and Chain Lightning and Dreadbore. They're probably the namesake you know, three, uh, uh, the, the, um, namely red cards that you would say these are iconic for a Jund shell. The other difference between lands and dash M is lands might start making decisions about cutting cards like Tamago potentially, um, Mm, and going a bit mm. more strongly down the, the lands theme. But anyway, that's. Yeah. Tamago is a great, uh, discussion point. We could probably spend an entire episode on saying, you know, do I put Tamagoyf into uh, a junk, a value junk deck? Because it doesn't fit the value theme, but it applies so much pressure in the early game to allow you to curve out. So there's, it's a, Tamagoyf's a great discussion point about in mid-range, um, but one we might not have time for. We can re- revisit yeah, the, the, the whole point about, time. like, how big does a two-mana creature have to be for it to be just good enough? Yeah, um, Re- revisit our what was what set was it? Core twenty twenty with the seven six three drop, and yeah, yeah. we're just going. Well, you know, how big does it have to be? You know, is this is this big enough to play <laughs> as just a vanilla? Um, so let's let's have a look at another family of of uh, decks, mid range decks. This is the greed family. Now, uh, this is really the most appropriate name. <laughs> For this group of decks because oh, yes. they are disgusting 
It's full of value. Uh, they are fundamentally saltai colours, if uh, I use the new nomenclature. Uh, so yeah. bug colours with uh, green being the fundamental and then blue and black. And they tend to have the splash colour being red, but that's not always the case. It depends on how it's yeah. constructed. So these can uh, include decks that you might have heard before called Fiery Saltai or Nono White because it's not playing white. Uh, Yidris and Kespod or Egan's Kespod. These are all these terms that have been, been thrown around. Fundamentally, they're just greedy decks. And their key theme is that they rely on just pure, unadulterated value. They are going to play the best of everything. Whatever the card, whatever the color, you name a color and you just name the best cards in that color that fit a mid-range deck and you're playing them. So I've just chucked in a whole bunch of cards. These are the same things that you see in all of these decks, pretty much. Baleful Strix, Leovold, Diefleet Daredevil, Culligan's Command, Kess, True Name Nemesis, Brainstorm, Painful Truths, Ashiok, uh, Dak Faden, the two Lilianas, uh, Jason Mindscope. The list is just too long to just go over all of these, but if you think of anything that's good in these colours, then if you want to play all of them at once, play one of the greed decks. One of the other ways you might describe these decks, um, it, it's the greed family. It's also often the mono two-for-one family. Oh, um, yes. Yeah, it's a great description. A tribal, so, so, tribal two-for-ones or something? Yeah, tribal two-for-ones. Um, because just every card you play is gaining you another card or multiple other cards. Um, Hymn to Turax, another classic one that a lot of these decks will fit in if they can. Mm, um, mm. And, and that's their main source of card advantage is that just everything they do is card advantage. Um, yeah. As you said, it's pure unadulterated value. Um, yeah. Oh, we didn't actually... Oh, um, we'll sorry, go just, over the... just going back to the lands ones for one second. We didn't mention what their main source of card advantage is. Uh, in my experience, their main source of card advantage is the opponent not controlling any lands and being able to cast any spells. <laughs> so. And usually hinging off life from a loam. <laughs> yeah. From just yeah. strip mine, strip mine you again, strip mine you again. Oh, you've got a couple of fetch lands out? I'll just wait. Now I'll start strip mining your fetch lands and then I'll strip yeah. mine them. <laughs> yeah, it's just oh, oh, really, really disgusting. So, but back in, uh, in Mono Greed. In the Greed family. <laughs> uh, they may not be running life from a loam, but they sure are running... Uh, mono two-for-ones, and the most defining tribal two-for-ones deck is Jacob Dunn's Yidris deck. Now, it is often not playing Yidris, that card, anymore, just because Yidris itself isn't a two-for-one, so it doesn't fit, yeah. the, doesn't fit the theme. It's only a two-for-one later, right? But it doesn't do it when you when you uh, actually play it. So the, the way the, the three decks that I want to highlight differ, uh, uh, Jacob Dunn's version is... Uh, very, very powerful in the form of the Cascade package and not running things like Counterspells. Because when you run Bloodbraid Elf and Shardless Agent, you'd rather not Cascade into a an evasive action. You'd rather Cascade into some variety of Ancestral Recall because you can get yeah. three-for-ones. Why not? Or four-for-ones when you're Shardless Agenting into an Ancestral Visions. <laughs> pretty, yeah. pretty strong. Uh, the it's, other... It's a good time. Yeah. The other deck that I'll point out is uh, Isaac Egan's Kespod deck. Uh, this, the fundamental of this deck that changes it, you know, its package, is the pod chain. And the best part of the pod chain is finding a spell seeker to tutor out Time Walk, casting Time Walk, untapping your pod again, and podding away the spell seeker to get back Kess, which then 
lets you cast a time walk again. And then you can, if you really, really want to go that far, pot away Kess into Thragtusk. Uh, not saying that, this is not, I'm not advocating this play. However, if you would like to do it, you can, because it's all about the pod chain. It's really sweet. Yeah. Uh, the last one of the Greed family is uh, Julian Toe's Fiery Salt Eye deck. So this is the most traditional of the uh, decks. It is fundamentally all about the fair plan, very much like the modern Jun deck that uh, Vance was talking about. Uh, it leverages just powerful cards that work by themselves. The there's no need to set things up. There's no need to you know play different cards that happen to work with a pod birthing pod. Instead, you just play things like Bitter Blossom, Dark Confidant, Grim Flayer, Huntmaster of the Fells, and Mind Twist. Really, really sweet deck. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Um, in some respects, it plays a little bit similarly, or feels a li little bit similar to Dark Band, but just coming at it from a different angle. Um, I mean, it, it plays more black and obviously 100% more red. Um, yeah. But yeah, there, there can be some similarities there. So yeah, it's a it's a pretty sweet sweet one if you if you're interested in uh, two for ones or three for ones or four for ones, uh, please try and experiment with sleeping these up. You will need a lot of dual lands, but if you're if your local meta has proxy, you can just jam some of the most powerful cards ever known. And if you if they don't have proxy, you can usually borrow, say, you know, uh, three or four of the dual lands. And the rest of the cards are relatively cheap cards if you're not playing Jacob Dunn's version. Uh, because you can, you know, birthing pot into a Thrag Tusk. That's a relatively uh, financially uh, uh, sensible play. We've got uh, two, more, two more groups uh, that we're going to talk about. Uh, one of these groups is the... Uh, I've called it the not currently trending camp. So these are decks that have been explored in the past or they have uh, particular aficionados who love that particular combination of colours. They keep experimenting with them. They keep brewing with it. They adapt it to the metagame and it evolves slowly, falls in and out of favour. These are things like uh, Esper Midrange. You know, if you want to play a Lingering Souls and a Skull Clamp, this is the type of deck for you. And oh, So many Skull Clamp. <laughs> so good, right? <laughs> and... Then things like uh, Mardu Midrange. There's a couple of different versions of Mardu, and there's a kind of a hate bears style where you're going to, uh, you know, try and, uh, you know, be a bit more of the aggro style approach. Not really the one we're talking about. This is more of the midrange approach where you're playing. What's that Mardu creature? It's a four drop, and it's like a five four, and you can sacrifice a creature to give it an ability like a life link or something like that. Oh yeah, the Siege Rhino equivalent. Yeah. Yeah. So that that yeah, not guy. Not as good as Siege Rhino. Yeah. The the, the, the Siege Rhino equivalent in Mardu, uh, that's the kind of creature that really uh, is iconic for you wanting to play that particular style of mid-range. That creature and, you know, Crackling Doom or something. You know, these are, you know, cards you can't play anywhere else, but you could try and slot into this type of deck. Uh, others are Mono Black. Mono Black mid-range is something that uh, has worked in the past. Basically, if you want to play... Uh, Gary, what's his name? Grey Merchant of Asphodel, I think. Yeah, that's this is the kind of deck that you would play. It's mid-range. You're not really looking at a control game. You're looking at slamming some uh, threats, some two-for-ones and the like, and having a really consistent mana base, and then sometimes just uh, contaminationing your opponent out or you know winning off a bit of Blossom. Uh, and speaking of bit of Blossom, the other one in this kind of camp is things like uh, Black-White Tokens. Uh, this is a, a very, very mid-range deck. You know, it's uh, 
its its role switches according to its match, but it tends to play out very similarly each time. And because of that level of inflexibility, uh, it tends to not be as strong an option as putting green in it and making it junk, for example. Uh, so they're just some of the you know uh, examples of different types of mid-range decks that don't fit in the previous families, but you can um, you can generally you know name any set of set of colors, smush them together and put grindy threats into it, and you can create generally a mid-range deck as long as you ascribe to those earlier definitions and satisfy those requirements. I have a I have a hot take. Of why these decks are not currently powerful enough to work. So my hot take is when you're in a fair matchup, Lanoa Elves is Mox Emerald. And Mox Emerald is three points. So this is this is a really, really this is a hot take because it has to be controversial. And people are gonna go, no way, that common, that 10 cent common is not a five thousand dollar card. Uh, so the, the reason I say this is because when you're playing mid-range and you have an opening hand that has treetop village and then the next turn you play Kazali Pride Mage and you're on the draw, as opposed to your opponent who goes turn one Savannah into Lanawa Elves, turn two literally any three drop. Just any three drop. Like the even the most lackluster three drop in your deck, like Blade Splicer, which is basically just four power for three it's the equivalent of a loxodon smiter you know uh that play you know i'm on i'm on the play and i go lanoa elves and then you go treetop village tapped and then i go blade splicer and you go uh, okay i guess I'll, I'll i'll play something <laughs> to block that oh i can't block it's got first strike so it in most instances if you're not playing, say, some kind of combo deck or you need to turbo out with the mana on the same turn, uh, the Lanoa Elves is largely playing a Mox Emerald role. And uh, sure, it's not as powerful, but it's that, that feeling, the feeling of being yeah. so far behind. Uh, that's why I believe that basically any of the decks we talked about before, uh, you could pretty much sleeve one of those decks up, take it to an event, and you get one of those draws... And in some of those decks like Junk, where you're playing seven or eight options to play a turn one, essentially Mox Emerald uh, with Suspend One, and uh, then <laughs> your you, you, other other versions play, say, maybe two Minor Dorks or three Minor Dorks, you've still got access to that play. And that play puts you so far ahead in a fair matchup that it feels practically unfair. And I don't believe that the you know Esper and Mardu and Black White Tokens, I don't believe, because they can't do that, they tend to fall further behind in the mid-range spectrum, in my opinion. I mean, it's not as good as a Mox Emerald, but there is definitely some merit in that most of the decks we've talked about previously and most of the successful mid-range decks you'll see in most formats are green yep. to some greater or lesser extent. You don't always play the Mana Dorks, but <clears throat> it definitely does help get you ahead. I mean, there's a reason why... Bolt the bird is something people say because so true. If I go turn one, Tager Elf, and you don't kill it, there's a reasonable chance that I'm playing uh, a three drop that's going to start gaining me advantage, and then the next turn I'm playing a four drop that is just going to run away with the game on you. Yeah. If all you've done is you know slowly gently play out your curve, you know absolutely. If I if I if I on turn two I'm playing um, I don't know. 
Goblin Rabble Master. And then on turn three, and, and you play something, and then on my turn three, I play uh, Chandra Torture Defiance, take it down, kill whatever you've played, smash you for five. You're I could have a bad day. So dead. Like <laughs> you, you need to do so much catching up so fast. Um, yeah, that is that's very very true. Uh, this this links into uh, the two decks that we're currently playing. So well, so, uh, so the, before we get into those, there's that other category that I put in. Yeah, so um, so your your deck actually is in this category. It is so, in this category. Yeah, <laughs> so it, it'll it'll link in together. Um, I'll I'll read this one. Um, so this this category is what I call big green decks. Um, so, and many of these other decks, as we just said, are kind of big green decks. But these are decks which are primarily green with not much other color in them. Um, so the, the two examples I've got here, I did have Jundam. We, we already talked about that, and it only loosely fits in this category. Uh, Elves, which is also kind of a ramp deck, um, and uh, Dinobots, my red green Walkers deck. So. The core kinds of thing, what, what these decks are trying to do is the classic mid-range thing of accelerate out big threats and smash your opponent about the face with them. Um, they tend to be a bit lighter on disruption than some of the other kinds of decks we've seen previously. Um, when I'm playing Dinobots, my disruption is my opponent just not having a life total anymore. <laughs> yeah, you fit more on the, the, the kind of aggressive spectrum, don't you? You kind of go... I'm proactive, I'm going to kill you. Yeah, I mean, you do With definitely play a strong yeah. control game sometimes, particularly against mid-range and other aggro decks where you're just trying to build a pillow fort around your planeswalkers until your opponent just can't cope anymore with all the advantage you're getting. Oh, yeah. Um, but you do also have some games where you're just like, oh, Tamagoyf into whatever, into, you know, Huntmaster of the Fells, into Glorybringer. <laughs> um so the core kinds of cards that you'll see in these decks, and these are, are quite familiar to previous ones, are uh, so you know Titania, Tamagoy, Scavenging Ooze, um, Corsair of Crufix, usual suspects. some Elvis to Ramp. Yeah, all the the good, um, the good green, green planeswalkers tend stuff. to be more important in these because well the green and red for mine, but um, because that is going to be one of your main sources of card advantage, and being able to play all of these double green cards is one of the reasons to play less colors, like being able to entirely reliably play them. Um, so the sorts of packages you might see in these decks. So Elves, one of the key things it's doing that other decks aren't is it's playing Natural Order so that it can just create a hoof you to death. Um, this is why some people call it it's kind of a combo deck, it's kind of a ramp deck, because its plan is to accelerate by hook or by crook into uh, your 7 and 8 drop sized horrifying devastating monsters. Um... It's a really good deck. It often splashes white. It sometimes splashes black. So, you know, this is for Knight of the Reliquy or um, Deathrite Charm and Activations or or various sideboard options. So in red-green, what you get out of that is more burn and a lot of really good Planeswalkers um, primarily. There's not a lot of other red cards that I'm playing most of the time. One thing you do get that's a recent printing, and this actually has started influencing a lot of the lands decks, Mm. is Ren and Six. Yeah. Um, very, our very favorite strong. topic uh, of recent episodes, Ren and Six. <laughs> you know, it's it's two mana. It gets you card advantage by getting your lands back. It sometimes just strip locks your opponent completely out of the game. It's you know, it's a pretty good deal for the not very much mana and time you invest in it. 
you could play uh, Green Black. Uh, actually, one of the decks we haven't listed, which is probably a mid-range deck, is uh, Phil's deck, uh, That's So Raven Crime. Um, oh, yeah, it's got a grindy so engine crime. in it. It's got that kind of yeah, it's, Raven's it's, Crime. It's a Green Black, grind. grindy, poxy mm. kind of deck, which is it's not strictly mid-range, but it's pretty close. Um, and, and it follows a lot of these same sort of uh, cards. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so this is the reason this is at the end is because it's our bone of contention, right? We we're like yeah. we, we we disagree on the exact definition of elves. Uh, I do believe that you're correct in that red green mid range. Your uh, Dino Bots is a mid range deck. It really does fit uh, a lot of the definitions that we went over before. Um, when it comes to elves, so the 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 challenge is um, hybrid decks. Hybrid decks are just so hard to categorize, and uh, as we said at the the beginning, where it's really hard to say include or, or permit ourselves to include hybrid decks into a discussion of one particular deep dive because so many decks in Highlander are hybrid decks. And the reason why they're strong is their hybrid nature. So they can pivot in it at any point. Uh, I would say that elves is its mid range element is very strong and very, very prominent. You're able to easily, you know, see the elements within it, that make it able to play the mid-range game, and so many of its games are won off the back of, of a mid-range grind. Uh, yeah. th- it is fundamentally a mid-range ramp combo deck. So the reason why it's ramp... <laughs> is old mid-range ramp combo. Yeah, I know. What a, what a category. So when we do our deep dive on mid-range ramp combo, we'll have one deck to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and um, elves... So the, the general indicators of, of uh, when you see a hybrid deck or when you see a ramp deck is A, the focus, the heavy focus on mana, uh, B, the fact that it has seven drops in it, multiple multiple seven drops, when you've got like yeah. Hornet Queen and um, uh, Crater Hoof Behemoth. If you look at the... Uh, and some and Primeval and think- Titan, so it's kind of got like a six and a seven and a seven. And if you look at those cards, basically if you line them up against a traditional mid-range shell, which goes from one to five, and then sometimes maybe in the one right meta can put a most. six. Like, at yeah. the most, they can put one generally. They don't, don't even put more than one. Um, yeah. But an Elves deck really, really happily goes, you know what? I can easily hard cast Hornet Queen. And you go, oh, that's yeah. a sign that you've got a ramp element in this. So it's kind yeah. of yeah. bordering amongst these three and that ability to kind of go out of nowhere, four mana, natural order, you lose the game. Uh, well, it's really, really, yeah, yeah it straddles it t- this tightrope, like a three-way tightrope, and um, really hard to place it. And, and it's not just that elves can go, ah, oh, sometimes I play Hornet Queen. It's that elves can go, ah, oh, sometimes I play Hornet Queen on turn four. <laughs> um, yeah, so true. <laughs> so true. So, yeah, it, th- these are the degenerate things that, say, a mid-range deck. A mid-range deck, generally, when you look at what degeneracy it can do, you go, wow, that's so cool and fair. And then you look at the, you know, combo and ramp decks and you look at the degeneracy they can do and you go, none of this is fair. There's, there's no world in which you should be able to play that on turn three or turn four. So Yeah. Uh, and, and Elves is certainly the sort of deck, um, and I've had this happen to me, where um, sometimes, and it wasn't turn four, it was later in the game, but it's the sort of deck that can go, uh, I'm going to Hornet Queen, uh, I'm going to natural order for Hornet Queen, and then I'm going to play another creature, and then I'm going to play Cradle Hoop Behemoth, all on the same turn. It's <laughs> ridiculous. Because um, Gaia's Cradle is pretty good. But anyway. Yeah, so that's that's basically uh, all the decks we were talking about. The, uh, the, so you're currently playing Dinobots a lot. I'm playing Grixis Midrange, 
which oh, doesn't yeah. have a name. It's just Grixis Midrange because it's really fundamentally quite boring. Uh, it's basically Grixis, take out all the counter spells and all the card disadvantage cards, like uh, Force of Will and the like, and literally fill it with two for ones. And yep. your game plan is, you know, turn one, Thought Seize You, turn two, play a Search for Canter. Turn three, play uh, Liliana Last Hope. Oh, you counted it. Okay, pass the turn. Go to my turn. I'll play Chandra Torch of Defiance. Oh, you counted it. Okay, go to my turn. Well, oh, well, I'll, I'll now play um, uh, uh, Enter the God Eternals and kill your creature. Then I'll go to my turn, a couple of turns later, I'll snap cast a mage, Enter the God Eternals, your creature again. And I'll kill you with the... Amass- yeah, it's just... It, it's just, it, it plays out this really, really uh, mid-range game and your opponent's constantly thinking you're control, so they're, you know, holding mana up and think, you know, no, I, I've got like two counter spells in this deck and they literally counter spell <laughs> and mana drain just because mana drain can power out something. So yeah. it's a mid-range principles, but I, I don't believe it's better than any of the green-based mid-range decks. Uh, it just has that, um, you know, uh, surprise element where you actually have a good game against combo uh, yeah, post-board. Yeah. So that brings us to the end of our discussion of the specific decks. We'll just end with a couple of questions. Uh, so now that we uh, know a bit more about midrange in general, uh, I guess one question is, would the format, like how would our format be? Would it be better? Would it be worse? Would it be more fun if all the decks were midrange, right? We were talking about how the skill intensive level of, yeah. uh, you know, midrange mirrors never being out of the game, and so on. Um, this is a hypothetical, and, and I can tell you uh, which side of the coin I come down on this one, but I'll ask it to Vance first. I mean, I think it's definitely worse um, for most people. There are some people who would be just like, yes, I love mid-range mirrors. I would like nothing more than to play like a 16-round GP of Highlander mid-range mirrors. And to be <laughs> fair, if I got a GP out of it, I would do it. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's, fair, it's a fair trade-off, right? Yeah, I'm in. Um, but at the same time, formats are better when there are a variety of things people can do because different people like different kinds of decks. Like, um, I, I'm 100% certain that if you gave JP that option, he would just flip the table and walk out of the room. Because Never play it again, yeah. <laughs> mid-range yep. mirrors are not the kind of match that he enjoys that much, um, by and large. Like, he, there's a reason he plays Storm all the time. It's because he really enjoys playing it, right? Um, there, there's a couple of Canberra players, um, like Jacob and various other people, who I imagine would also, you know, be not that keen for that format. Um, so, I think mid-range... I mean, as we've said before, more fair decks than unfair decks is probably good, and a bit more mid-range than anything else is probably good because it is... It's good, clean fun, and it's a good entry point for most people into the format. Like, if, if you gave someone uh, a Jund mid-range deck and they've played Modern or they've, you know, Legacy or they've played Standard when you know at various points, they could just sit down and play it without even looking at the contents and probably mm. do pretty reasonably, um, which, which is one of the really good things about mid-range is it's not that it's not... Like, the peak skill is still quite high, but the bar for being able to play a lot of mid-range decks decently is relatively low. Um, you can yeah. do it without without a huge amount of practice or experience. Um, you can sit down and be, you know, a reasonable C-grade pilot 
Which and is obviously not true of a lot of control decks or combo decks. It's so true. And and if you uh, play mid-range for long enough, you go from going, uh, you know, basic level skill, able to pull off wins and losses as necessary, you know, just uh, balance it, that yeah. constant balancing out, constantly feeling like you're in the game. And then you go to mid-range level master Isaac Egan, where... You know, you you just kind of go. How did you win from that situation? And it's all because he's played mid range just for life. He's dedicated himself to to just grinding out wins from the most corner case situations by birthing pod this into this to untap this, and then this happens, and suddenly you're like, how how did how did I lose? You know, three yeah, turns mean... later, and you go, oh, it's all because of that one turn that happened about ten turns ago. That allowed him to posture in a certain way. So yeah, you're you're basically kind of eking out those extra percentage points, and yeah. it'll make that mid range and mid range mirrors really really fun. So yeah, I, I come down on the same side of the coin as you. I completely agree that the format uh, is uh, beloved by many because everyone's got finds you know a home within it. But I do understand that mid range mirrors are generally not not fun does that make sense you know you're never going to yeah. not have fun in a you're never going to be blood mooned out in a mid-range mirror and go oh this is miserable you generally yeah. have a back and forth or if you have you've you know, made your own bed yeah. um, <laughs> just back to isaac for a second he has definitely played a lot of uh, other decks but i think one of the reasons he enjoys mid-range decks so much is you get to play so much magic um mm. there was there was a deck uh he and jp came up with for it was, it was the Melbourne GP where we ended up in 99 plays. And I'm not sure, I think both of them might have chickened out of playing it. Or maybe Isaac <laughs> played it and JP didn't. But it was it was a Storm variant. Uh, there's a card that whenever you play a spell, you play multiple copies for the number of things you played that turn. Uh, name of which escapes me. Oh, yeah. Um, is, it, is it the, uh, it's like a Sentinel Totem or something like that? Can yeah, yeah, something like that. that. Like, I think they were, they were playing pings. that and, and, you know, just like taking multiple, multiple extra turns with, with uh, Time Walk. Uh, and Isaac's description of it was like, I'm not sure how good it is, but I love playing it because every time we play a match, I get to play like 90% of the magic. <laughs> Even if I lose, I'm just playing so much more magic than everyone else involved. Take all <laughs> so, the turns. Well, or just, you know, you just take so many game actions. Um, and then sometimes you also die. Maximize so, your anyway. magic. That seems good. Yeah. So, <laughs> what was so, our other question? So the other question is, uh, what are the best points for mid-range decks? I think this the answer is probably too amorphous to really nail down. But uh, think back to the families that we talked about. One of the families is the Life from the Loam family. So generally, Life from the Loam is obviously one of them. But you're going to have things interacting with that, like Fast Bond. And the other families involving... Yeah, and Strict Waste, yeah. And then the other family involving equipment packages, it means you're going to sink a whole bunch of points into Stoneforge Mystic, Umazawa's Jitter, and Skullclamp. So uh, these are probably the the pillars of the you know the Junk family and the Lands family. When it comes to the Greed family, your best points are generally going to be things like True Name Nemesis and Jace the Mind Sculptor. That's generally where they tend to lie. They're often... A lot of those decks play Time Walk or Ancestral as well. Um, so my answer to this would be basically all of the points are good for mid-range decks except for the ones which are dedicated combo points. So Oh, good point, yeah. You know, skip past your Ancestrals, your Yorgamoth Bargains, your... Uh, um, no, your Ancestrals. Skip past your Channels, your Yorgamoth Bargains, your Yorgamoth Wills. Those aren't for you. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, 
Uh, Green Sun Zenith, great. Moxes, great. Uh, as you said, you know, Strip, Waste, Life from the Loam, Fast Bond, they're all great. Time Walk and Ancestral can be really great in some of these decks. Um, it's, it's one of the features of mid-range that we were sort of talking about before, which is why I wanted to have this question in, is that mid-range decks you can build basically however you want. Mm, um, yeah. You can pick the things that you want to be doing and as long as the cards you're pairing them with aren't like, you know, grizzly bears and wood elemental, uh, you can probably build a strong deck around it, right? Like, you can't build a strong deck around wood elemental, in my opinion, because the card is A-grade trash. But um, <laughs> if, if you're playing sort of uh, quote-unquote real cards in your deck, and you're like, yeah, I re-, like when I first built green-red, uh, it was based a bit off a deck that Isaac and Wanchin had built, which was a red-black walkers deck. But I'm like, what I really want to do is play a deck that features Thunderbreak Regent and uh, Flipnissa. Nice. And go from there. And sometimes you get to a point when you're in the building process where you're like, oh, I really need to cut one of the cards, which is the reason why I'm playing this deck. That's sad. But <laughs> as long as you're building sensibly from that starting point, you can usually build a shell that makes the best out of any non-terrible card if that makes sense yeah that makes total sense uh one one quick question about that is is a grade trash the best possible trash or the worst possible trash which way around does it go <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave that a as a viewer question feel free to consider that and tell us I, on the discord i would think a grade trash is the trashiest trash which makes so, it so good or bad <laughs> well it depends whether you want trash if you want trash it's the best trash but if you don't want your deck to contain trash don't go near it okay all right that seems like a pretty definitive answer uh <laughs> so <laughs> that, that largely brings us to the end of our discussion and, and our deep dive on mid-range and please sleeve up your mid-range decks think about those uh those concepts we talked about at the beginning think about how you can address them with your particular brew and if it ticks those boxes you've probably got a good mid-range deck on your hands uh i'll I think it's time for the outro. Yeah, so um, if you come up with any decks that fit in any of these families that we haven't talked about, let us know in the Discord or in the other places that I'll tell you about in a second. Um, if you haven't got any decks of that kind, then, you know, if you've got decks that fit not in those families, then that's also a great thing that we'd love to hear about. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about that we've added to the Discord recently is we've added a channel called Fight Club, um, for people to find opponents to play on various online mediums. Um, there's one pin message, which is the first rule of Fight Club is, look, this is not for actual fights, you degenerates. Please just play Highlander online. Um, <laughs> but other than that, um, we've had a number of people who have gone in there and like, oh, I'd really like a game on Moto or X-Mage or whatever. Um, is anyone available? And there are fun is there's... Um, Particularly if you're in an Australian time zone, there's uh, people there in the evenings, most evenings. Um, Angus of CBR MTG has been using it to organise uh, him streaming against viewers um, on Moto playing Highlander. Um, he's done that two or three times now, and they've been pretty sweet to watch. So awesome. um, I'll see if I can get Angus to give me a link to some of that on YouTube or to his uh, Twitch account, and we'll try and put that in the show notes. Um but certainly if you just go into the Discord and look for uh, Angus, he'll definitely tell you all about it. Um, Sounds great. Yeah, it's 
it's really sweet to see people just being like, but what I want to do this evening is really just play some Highlander because it's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, the usual uh, outro sans notes because organization is something I'm not going to be doing right now. Yeah, um, it's, so, it's so telling that I, I spend all this time like <laughs> compiling this mid-range thing. And I, at the beginning I said intro at the end. I didn't even write outro. I just go, yeah. oh, oh, okay, well, handball. <laughs> so, um, as I just said, there's a Discord, uh, the Seven Point Highland Discord, which there will probably be a link to in the show notes, or you can find a link to it on the Facebook group. Um, it's a really good place to come and just chat about Highlander. Uh, there's also a Facebook group, as I just mentioned. In fact, two Facebook groups. There's one specifically for the Highlander cast, which is uh, Facebook slash Highlander cast. Um, there's also one for Seven Point Highlander more generally, where you can just come and have a chat with people, talk about deck lists. Um, get advice on what cards you should or shouldn't be playing um, or opinions on what cards you should or shouldn't be playing. Uh, it is definitely a land of many opinions. Um, Twitter <laughs> is another place you can contact us. So uh, I'm on Twitter as at Vancian Notions. Sav is on Twitter as he's not on Twitter at all. That's a lie. Um, <laughs> and the Highlander cast is on there as at, uh, as at Highlander cast. Um, there's also a Patreon where you can come along and provide uh, financial support if you want to. There's absolutely no obligation for you to do so. We'll use it for things like uh, improving equipment, perhaps giveaways occasionally uh, to encourage people to play the format, that kind of thing. It is at Patreon slash patreon.com slash Highlandercast or 7-point Highlandercast. Keep our branding as on theme as we can in all of these places because it uh, makes it easier for people to find us. I still can't remember it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and patrons... Uh, they get sometimes a little bit more background about, you know, bits we deleted out of the episode. Uh, sometimes get the episodes a little bit early um, on those occasions where I've actually managed to get all my editing done uh, ahead of time rather than, you know, a day or two late, which is often the case. Um, but yeah, look, it's really great to see people passionate about Highlander. Um, you can find us in all of those places. Uh, come say hi to us on the Discord. And yeah, that's that's all we've got to say. So see you next time. Bye, everyone. And that's a wrap.